0: Okay, we're in chapter four, and we're beginning the chapter. And this chapter is a um, a bunch of diverse miracles that Elisha is going to pull off, all kinds of different miracles. And it's really a continuation of miracle stories of the prophet Elisha. Even the last chapter we read, which was really about a war, that was the focus of the chapter. This huge war between the three kings and Moab. Well, according to Rashi, that whole chapter was placed where it was because it's part of the miracle stories of Elisha because incorporated in that war story was Elisha's awesome miracle where he brought down the rain and that saved the, uh, the Jewish kings. And so here is the continuation in this series of miracles by the prophet Elisha. And, and while the previous chapter was a miracle on a national level, in a war situation. Now we're gonna see miracles that come in all kinds of individual scenarios. And that's special about the Bible. We have stories about kings and, and wars and prophets, and that's really the focus of the Bible. It's pretty much a national book. But that doesn't mean you don't have a, a lot of individual stories as well, where we can learn so much from. So let's open up chapter four, verse one. V'ishah chad min b'nei tzaka el Elisha. And there was a woman and she was one of the, uh, she was a wife of one of the prophets. And she cried out to Elisha. And she said the following. Avdacha ishimet. Your servant, my husband, has died. And my husband, your servant, you know that he feared the Lord. and you know what's happening now? Well, the creditor has come wants to take my two children for himself as slaves. So, we got to look at this verse uh, deeply because it kind of sets the table for the entire story of this miracle. What's going on? A woman here, she's a widow because her husband has died and she's described as being a wife of one of the prophets. So one of the prophets has died and she's left holding a debt and the creditor creditor is about to take her children are slaves. So the sages teach us that her husband, who died, is the prophet Ovadia. Now you get it really. Uh, you get a nice hint about that in the verse because she says that you know my husband was Yorei et Hashem. He was God fearing. And if you go back to the narrative on Ovadia, if you go back to chapter eighteen in Kings one, if we recall, Ovadia meets Elijah. Right? Elijah had just come back. Um, to appear before chav, and he runs into Avadia. And there, the verse uses the same terminology as we have here. It says, So the verse says there, it testifies to Avadia's righteousness, that Avadia was God-fearing greatly. He was very, very God-fearing. And so here, in this verse, that she says that, that my husband was God-fearing, that points again to Avadia, the prophet, who has passed on we don't know why exactly and her wife, his wife is left with this debt um, that she can't pay back and the creditor is going to, to take her children so it's a really sad story now how did this debt uh become how did this debt come to be well the teach the sages tell us if you recall remember Avadi was hiding those slay those prophets from Jezebel that's we saw that in chapter eighteen. Kings 1, that Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, she was murdering the prophets of the Lord, and Avadia, who was responsible for the house of Ahab, he had some kind of role, he was like the head rabbi in Achav's uh, kingdom, and he was righteous and sacrificing his life by sustaining 100 prophets in two different caves, 50 in one cave, 50 in another cave, if you recall that, we learned that. Now, we didn't really get into, how did he get the, the supplies, to those, to those prophets, to hide them out, and, we learn here, from, uh, Rashi brings it down, that he was borrowing, money, and goods, from the son of Achav, Yoram, now Yoram is the king now, but at the time, when Yoram was the son of Achav, he was the one, who was lending Avadia, money, so Avadia was able to feed these prophets, and now, Yoram wants the debt back and his wife is holding the bag. So it's a really sad story and um, it gets even sadder when we look at a Midrash here. It says that the wife of Avadia, she was really, you know, in, bad way, in a bad way. She's got this creditor after her, the son of the king, who's now become the king, King Yoram. And she went and she... Went to the cemetery because she was so distraught. And she cried out and she said, God fearing man, oh God fearing man, Yura Lukim. She's looking for her husband. She wants to speak to him at his at his gravesite. And a voice was heard and saying, What do you mean, God-fearing man? A lot of people were called God-fearing. Abraham was called Yura Lukim. he was God-fearing. Joseph was called in the Bible Yurah Lukim, God-fearing. And so is Job and Avadia. So who do you want? So she said, I want the one. Who was described as, fear, he feared the Lord greatly. Yerealokim Ma'od. That's the verse we just read in uh, chapter 18 in Kings. So, Kings 1. So, Avadi gets that special title. He was even more God fearing than Abraham because it's Ma'od. He was greatly God fearing. So she says, That's the one I want. So they directed her to the grave of her husband, and she rolled in the dust of the grave, and she said, My husband, my husband. What happened to your promise at the time on your deathbed? And you t- and I asked you, what am I going to do? You're leaving me with my two sons and, and, and with debts. What am I going to do? And he told her that, well, the Lord promised me and said to me that don't worry about the orphans. I will sustain the orphans. I will sustain the widows. We know that Hashem takes care of orphans and widows. And she says, but the orphans are calling out, "Take us, Father! Take us! You know, we want to be with you. We want to die already." And says, and Avadia then continues speaking to other things. But the point is, this further deepens that question of the the, the, the righteous man who suffers. You know, we have this question always in, in uh, Judaism, at Sadiq Veralo, that the righteous man often has a very hard time and many times the evil prospers. Here you have a classic example, when you look at all the details of this story, that the righteous are suffering, and it just doesn't seem fair. Is this Torah and this the the reward of Torah? I mean, this is a question. This woman, so righteous, her husband was so righteous, gave his life for the prophets to sustain them in a cave, and he is now... Passed away, and his wife is hell is uh, now under uh, this terrible threat where they're about to take a children. It just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair, and a lot of times it, things don't seem fair. You gotta sometimes just look at the big picture. You know, Yoram the king. Well, he's prospering now, so you could say, well, Yoram, he's the rasha, he's the evil guy, and look at how he prospers. But if you look down the road later on. Yoram is going to get hit really bad. I mean, we know that uh, as we, if we're going to go ahead a couple chapters, there's going to be a new king on, uh, in town named Yehu, and he's just going to strike Yoram right between the arms for not stretching out his arms to help uh, Avajah's wife. Or not only that, but he took interest from her. You're not allowed to take rebeat. It's a big, big prohibition in the Torah to take interest It's a Doraita uh, prohibition. And Yoram took heavy interest against this woman on Avadia's debt. So that's why it says he was uh, was struck later on uh, between the arms because he stretched out his arms to take interest and he was struck in the heart because he didn't have a heart towards the wife of Avadia. So we see here by the story something else that the kingdom of Achav and Yoram it was pretty, pretty corrupt because you don't really get that from the, other, from the narrative. You kind of get what's going on on the national level, on the spiritual level, if they're worshipping God or the worshipping idols. That you get. But you don't know what's going on in the, in the judicial system. Now, from this story, we, we get kind of a picture of what was going on uh, socially and politically and judicially. There was a lot of corruption. Okay, so that's the story up to now. It's sad. It seems unfair, but we must go on. So it says in verse 2 So he said to her, Elisha said to her, Ma what can I do for you? In other words, Elisha's not thinking, you know, I'll, maybe I'll lend you the money, uh, maybe I'll make a miracle. He doesn't know what to do at the moment. So he says, What can I do for you, Hagirili? Tell me. It could be that he's thinking maybe he can um, ask for money from some people he might know. After Alicia has, has connections, we're going to see that in the next story. Elisha has connections to big people. Maybe he's thinking he can talk to these people. Maybe he can get a trial done, proper justice done. He says, What can I do? So, but he you know what he says? My yesh what do you have in the house? So he's not going to go on the natural route. He's not going to go and try to borrow money for her or try to fix the uh the justice system here. No. He's going to go for a miracle. And that's because there's such injustice here. It's so sad and it cause it kind of causes a Hashem, a desecration of God's name that such righteous people should suffer in such a way that this widow and orphan should go through this. He's going to want he's going to pull off a miracle because he wants to show God's hand because certainly People are doubting, doubting God when they see something like this. You know, every time you see a tragedy, people doubt God's existence, like during the Holocaust and so forth. So Elisha so wants a miracle now. He doesn't want to just settle this in a regular way. He's got to fix this. So he says, what, what do you have in your house? And she says, So she says, you know, the only thing I have is an empty jug of oil. That's all I got. So he says to her, Well, go out, borrow for yourself a bunch of vessels, me from outside, go to neighbors, me it go to all your neighbors. Rekim, just bring me empty vessels from your neighbours Altamiti. Don't be cheap. Bring as many as you can. You know, usually we have this concept, Mr. Pikmawat, you should always settle for the minimum, don't settle for the maximum. But here he's telling you, you go out and you hoard as many vessels as you can, okay? Now, this is a very important concept when it comes to miracles. You can't have a miracle without a vessel. Miracles don't come out of nowhere. They have to fall or rest on something that already exists on the ground. So anytime there's a miracle, there has to be a vessel for that miracle. That's why if you're praying for a parnasa, for a good livelihood, well, you have to go out to work so the miracle could fall on something. Or if you want a, a good wife, a husband, a Shidduch, you got to go out on a date because the miracle is not going to just pop in the air. And so here as well, he wants to bring her oil. Well, he's not going to make it out of nothing. First, you have to start with something and you have to have a vessel for it because the oil can't just pour into the air. It's got to pour into a vessel. That's an iron-clared law of Torah when it comes to miracles. Even when David, in his miracle against Goliath, he didn't just say Psalms. He had to go out and fight and have some kind of strategy so the miracle can um, rest on something already existing. Okay, so she now is going out, bringing some empty vessels. And notice he says um, in the next verse, verse 4, And you're going to come with those vessels, and you're going to close the door. <inaudible> close the door behind your sons and behind yourself, and then you're going to pour uh, upon these vessels, okay? And you're just going to fill up these vessels with, with oil. So, verse 4 is also important when it comes to miracles. When you do it, when you have a miracle, make sure it's modest. You don't have to have the whole world see that you're the recipient of a miracle. Brachas, blessings come on things that are hidden from the eye. So, even though we do want to pursue Menisa, sure we want a miracle to be publicized for the sanctification of God's name. At the time it's happening, though, it's not good that everybody sees that she's the recipient of this miracle. You do it in a tsanua, modest way. That's why if you have good news, let's say somebody's pregnant, you don't notify everybody early on. You wait a little bit and let the thing uh, continue a little more before everybody knows about it because blessings are more um, uh, happen more when they're not in spotlight. So that's why you close the door, and you bring the vessels, and then he says to her, and the full one you shall carry away. So he's given her the rule. You're gonna, there's gonna be one vessel that's gonna be full of oil. It's gonna be pouring out oil. And you bring these empty vessels. When they're full, you carry it away. Then you bring the next vessel, and you carry it away one after another, one after another. And so we get a rule here that the sages bring that you cannot move the original vessel with the oil spilling out. That's like the well. That's the miracle. There's one uh, spring of oil, okay, one source of oil, and that's pouring into the other vessels. And don't move the original source. You just bring vessels to it and don't move the source itself. Don't move the mayan, don't remove the spring from its place. And that's just the rule of miracles. Um, Just like nature, uh, nature has its own rules. What is nature in the first place? What we call nature? Well, nature is a miracle that we got used to. We call it nature, because it happens all the time. Giving birth to a baby is a miracle, but we're used to it, so we call it nature. Well, miracles also have their own rules, okay? Because there's really not that much of a difference between a miracle like this and nature. Okay, so let's go on. Verse 5. So she does exactly what he says. She went away from him. She closed the door about herself. And they're bringing her vessels and she's pouring, just like she's supposed to do. He brings the vessel to her. She pours. Bring another vessel, and she pours. And she's got about 90 vessels, according to the sages. She's got a, a, lot, of, a lot of vessels. She's, she's really storing up on that oil. And when the vessels filled up, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. Bring me another one. I want to keep filling them." But he said, there's no more. And the minute there were no more vessels, the oil stopped pouring out. So there's the rule. There is no miracle without providing a vessel for that miracle. Even Elisha can't provide a miracle without giving him a vessel. You know, it's kind of like um, the joke that a Jew was praying to win the lottery and he'd go to the Kotel and pray, I've got to win the lottery, please Hashem, let me win the lottery. And he prays and prays. It never happens. So. An angel comes to Hashem and says, let let this Jew win the lottery already. He's praying and praying. So Hashem says to the angel, well, first he's got to buy a ticket. So that's that's the vessel. You can't have a miracle without buying a ticket, providing a vessel for that miracle. So she's got a whole bunch of oil now. Fantastic miracle. And she now runs to the man of God. She goes to the man of God, to Elisha, and she says, what should I do? And the man of God says, sell the oil, pay a debt, and your son shall live with the remainder. And that's how the story ends. So we'll say that in Hebrew, she went and she said to Isha Lokim, we call Elisha a man of God. He's one of 10 figures in the Bible who are termed Isha Lokim, a man of God. He tells us, sell the oil and pay off the creditors and your sons shall live with the remainder. You can live off that for the rest of your life. So we learn a couple of things from this. First of all, if somebody helps you out, gives you a loan or just helps you in a big way, it's really good to go back to that person and notify him what's going on. You know, keep in touch with the person. Like she keeps in touch with Alicia. Okay, what should I do now? You keep in touch, you notify him about what's happening. And then the next lesson is, first you pay your debts and then you, when you have money, First thing you should do is pay off your debts. So that covers miracle number one in chapter four. Next time out, we're going to talk about miracle number two, starting in verse eight.